The presentation today is on um, the gut microbiome. And um, as a little bit of background, um, I am, yes, I have a doctorate in public health from Loma Linda and a master's in health science and epidemiology from Johns Hopkins. Um, I'm also a registered dietitian. Um, and I spend a considerable about, amount of my time in, uh, in research. So research is really where I get a little bit excited. Um, and also nutrition. So what we're going to talk about today is the microbiome. I'm actually not going to go into the nutritional part of it very much. This is sort of a primer. Um, kind of the feedback I got was, you know, kind of let us know what, what this is. There's so much information out there. So this is sort of a starting point um, about what the microbiome is, what it entails, um, and, and how it can help us in our healing practices. So Hippocrates said this, this death sits in the bowels. Is that true? <laughs> he also said bad digestion is the root of all evil. Now, very interesting. What is he implying here? That it has an effect on your health and perhaps your mortality, and it has an effect on your emotional and mental state and perhaps even your spiritual state? Huh, interesting. So, of course, there's been a growing interest in the bio microbiome. And this is just a quick look at publications from 1990 to 2009, which went from 100-plus publications to over 500 publications every year. So um, when I did a, a search on PubMed on human gut microbiome, I think there were over 26,000 articles. Um, so I didn't go through all of them. <laughs> But, um, but we are going to share at least some of the information. But we're going to start with the pop quiz. Kind of get a feel of where everybody is in their knowledge of the microbiome. How many microbes are in the GI tract? Is it 200? Or, or sorry, 20 billion? Anybody? 500 billion? Okay, a few. 1 trillion? Okay, or a hundred trillion. Okay, a lot of you are correct. A hundred trillion microbes in the micro in, in the gut, in the entire GI tract. How many oh yo, I showed you the answer. <laughs> How many pounds of bacteria are in the human gut? Half a pound, five or twelve? Oh, okay, you all saw it, yes. And, and you know, there's a range, um, two, to, two to six pounds of, of uh, microbiome or of gut, of bacteria in the gut. Um, now, please tell your patients, this is not a quick way to lose weight. <laughs> okay, you know, trying to just get rid of all your microbiomes is not the optimal weight loss program. So, true or false, there are 10,000 times more microbes in one person's gut than all people on the earth. True? 10,000 times. 
False. A hundred thousand times. A <laughs> hundred thousand times in one person's gut compared to all that are in the world. Microbiome genes outnumber the host genes by 10. True or false? False. Yeah, most of you are false. That's right. So it's 100 to 200 times in terms of the genes in the microbiome versus in the host. The microbiome is composed mostly of facultative anaerobes, strict anaerobes, or aerobes. A, B, C. Strict. Is that what I'm hearing? A, A, facultative. It is actually strict anaerobes. Um, more than the, the two combined, the other two combined, by up to a hundredfold. How many phyla have been found in the human gut? 15, 35, phyla of bacteria, that should be. 50, 97. So I heard somebody say D. Yeah, a large number. Well, you know, it, it honestly, <laughs> we probably don't really know because there's a variety of what you find out there. Um, but what I saw is that it's around 50. However, it's dominated by two phyla. Okay, there are the two are, that are the predominant one. Um, and there are 500 to 1,000 species of microbiomes, of micro, micro, of bacteria in the gut. And when was the first stool transplant? 17,000 years ago in China, 1958 in post-op patients in Denver, or on Gray's Anatomy? ABC? B? A, B, okay, nobody's saying C, okay. It was China, 1,700 years ago in China. Okay, here's some quick facts. So with your GI tract, the number of bacteria that are in the tract per content of what's in there, okay, this is what this is identifying. So in the stomach, we're starting at about 10 to maybe 100 bacteria per gram of content. And as you go down, there's an exponential increase. So in the colon, you're at 10 to the 12th power of microbiomes per gram of content. So, so this is one of the, um, the features that you want to look for, is that this increasing um, number of bacteria. Infants delivered through C-section show a reduced microbial numbers in the first month after birth, okay, C-section. But those differences don't remain after about six months. So something to keep in mind during those very early um, time of, of the child's life. The infant's gut uh, microbiota correlates with shifts in feeding. So as you change the feeding process, the gut bacteria is also going to change. Um, that makes sense. So factors in that change, there are both internal and external factors that affect that change. 
External factors include, include the maternal um, microbiome, the feeding habits, as we just saw, the type of food eaten, and now as a dietitian, that's where I like to get excited, so the type of food eaten, the microbial load of the environment, that makes sense, and dietary and temperature-related stresses. Okay, so dietary stresses is certainly something that we can work on, that we can actually help by educating and providing uh, the, the family with an important um, information of how to feed their children. Now, internal, and there's a longer list, but this, these are some of the things that affect the internal, or these are some of the internal factors that affect the microbiomes um, changing over time, intestinal, intestinal pH, and we'll see later on that vaginal pH is really important. Um, microbial interaction, so the communication between the, the different uh, species that are in, in your gut, the environmental temperature, physiological factors, uh, the digestive process, host secretions, immune response, and of course we know about drug therapy, how that affects the microbiome. So what is normal? What, is, what should we expect to see? Well, do we know anyone who's normal? Um, so this is sort of a summary here of the types of bacteria that are located in the different regions of the gut. So when you're looking at different regions, you want to find the predominance of different micro, micro, um, microbial cells. Um, so we're going to look at that a little bit more closely. Here is another way to look at it, another graph, again, showing uh, the different parts of the body, including the skin, uh, the mouth, ear canal, and what are the different... Uh, relative amounts. So here's a graph that, or a picture just to, to let us remind us that different parts of the skin are different, right? It's almost like a different region or landscape of the earth. So we want to keep that in mind as well as we're looking at our patients. So here's a research study um, that was published um, just very recently, and uh, they looked at um, the, the details of what kind of microbiomes are in the different regions of the gut, and of uh, actually the, the body. And so they had 129 males, 113 females in a very narrow age range, right, 20 to 40. So these are the young adults, basically everybody in this room. Um, wow, <laughs> you're shocked. Okay. All right, so they took, they took samples from nine oral cavity and oropharynx regions, four skin samples, one nasal, uh, one from the GI, a self-collected stool, uh, three vaginal on the women, and they also did a, another measurement later on, on 130 of the, um, of the individuals. So they wanted to see how stable are their uh, microbiome over time. 
So this is their results on diversity. So let's see if we can, I'm, I'm sure you can see this all the way in the back. Um, the first column here is that we're looking at the, the nasal, and then we're looking at the skin, and then this section is the um, oral cavity, stool right here, and then the vagina. So the number and abundance distribution of distinct types of organisms within a given body habitat. So in those different regions, there are different um, abundance and diversity. So if you look at here the vaginal ones right here, and let's just look at the top graph, the vaginal ones, they were very simple in that not as much diversity, not as many different phenotypes and, and so forth. But in the oral and stool, this area, those were the most diverse. So I suppose that should be expected, right? Um, and, and then if you look at, this is the diversity of samples from the same habitat across individuals. Okay, if that makes sense. Diversity between samples from the same habitat is small. So my, um, my oral cavity bacteria should be fairly similar to yours. But your oral bacteria should be very different from your uh, colon bacteria. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Okay, um, here's another graph. The patterns of variation followed, followed the habitat group. Again, at the top, clusters. So we could see very clear clusters of the types of bacteria in those different regions of the body. And uniqueness of the individual's microbiota appears to be stable over time. So they, they looked at the follow-up about three months or two or three months later and they saw that their bacteria was fairly consistent over time. Host phenotype. There were some interesting correlations that they found looking at characteristics of the host and how that affected the microbiota. So ethnicity and vaginal pH, they found were the strongest associations in this particular study. So other things such as body weight, um, body mass index, gender, temperature, those were smaller correlations, not um, necessarily very significant. And I like this. They recommended, they didn't look at some other important factors that they said really should be done, including short and long-term diet, daily cycles, the mode of delivery, so were they vaginal or cesarean? Um, and of course, the host genetics. So a lot more research really does need to be done. A lot has been done, but there's still a lot that we don't know. Now, so I wanted to know, okay, that study was done within a US population. What about other countries? Is there variation across population groups? I know many of you travel overseas. 
um, and, and do work in other areas. So let's see, this research study was um, also published. This was in 2017. Now this beautiful graph um, gives us a number of bits of information, which you probably can't see. The colors represent the level of urbanization. Now, you know, some of these countries, there's only been one research study that they looked at. So this is basically a review. Um, in some of them, they've had several research studies to look at. Um, so green is less urbanization. And as you get to the yellows, oranges, and reds, it's a higher degree of urbanization. And the colors of the boxes represent where the bacteria uh, came from in that particular research study. But we're not necessarily going to look at that. So these are some of the things that they found regarding the subsistence pattern. So are they agrarian? Or are they wet, very westernized? And they were able to identify three primary levels. So a remote hunter-gatherer type of population, the traditional farming, fishing population, and also that western, our U.S. predominantly uh, urban population. And one of the major things that they found was that there was a decrease in microbial diversity as you became more urbanized. So the diversity within the gut was less as you became more technologically advanced. So they suggested that a lot of this is attributed to the diet. So for example, the hunter-gatherer, the type of microbiome, the bacteria that were predominant, were the prevalent ones, were the ones that break down complex carbohydrates, fibers. So they needed to, to have more of those because much of their diet is more plant-based. However, as you get more urbanized, your food becomes more and more urbanized as well. More refined, more sugars, simple sugars. And so they found that, um, that the type of bacteria more prevalent in those areas were more related to uh, processing those simple sugars. And... Um, very interestingly, they also see, found that the mode of subsistence, so that, that farming, how they got their food, was more important than ethnicity. So, there's a lot of diversity in the microbiome. How then can we look at the disease states? Now, this is, of course, a very, still a very brand new area. And there's still a lot of information that we don't know. Um, but we, we do have some really great research out there. And let me give you an overview. So here are some of the um, areas where they are finding that the microbiome does indeed affect disease state. So starting at the top is gut-brain, okay, linking the gut and brain. We're going to look at this a little bit more closely. So there's a, quite a bit of research on autism and the microbiota there. 
in mood disorders, depression and anxiety. There's quite a bit there as well. Um, asthma and, and uh, inflammatory diseases also. There's uh, hypertension and ischemic heart disease. They're finding microbiota are involved in that as well. Peripheral vascular disease. And they're thinking that that's a result of the metabolic syndrome, which changes the lipid metabolism. And that is related to microbiome composition as well. Colon cancer. Colon cancer. Diets high in red meat and animal fat we know is associated with colon cancer as well. And so if we kind of correlate with the previous research of the agrarian studies or populations that are more plant-based and have fewer incidents of colon cancer. So, um, so there's a number of things here. It, it, they, they also indicate low vitamin absorption um, in, in that population. Um, biliary disease, altered xenobiotic and drug metabolism, um, and obesity and the metabolic syndrome. So there's a lot that can be said about these, um, but we're only going to hit a couple of them. So this is just a quick fast fact about the human microbiome. What does the microbiome have to do with health? Well, it's essential for human development, for immunity, for nutrition. There are a number of other things that you could add to that list. The bacteria living in us and on us are not invaders, but beneficial colonizers. Now, there's a lot of uh, evolutionary perspective in the research, of course. Um, I think we can expect that. But, um, but the information that they're sharing about, that the research is showing about the relationship of the, the microbiome to the host is really, really very elegant and very interesting. Now, what the, this group, this is from the University of Washington, what they are proposing is that disease-causing microbes accumulate over time. They change gene activity. They change metabolic processes. They res re result in an abnormal immune response and um, against the substances and tissues that are normally present in the body. And also, um, interestingly, a lot of autoimmune diseases that are seeming to be linked as well. These um, they make the interesting statement, they appear to be passed in families not by DNA, but by inheriting the family's microbiome. And we do know that a child's microbiome is very similar to the mother's microbiome. Um, the colonization begins at birth, in the birth canal. Um, of course, it changes over time due to the very uh, many factors that affect your microbiome, but, but it's still, there's a lot of similarity among family. Those who you live with, you're going to have very similar microbiome composition. But some people say that your microbiome is as individual as your fingerprint. So you are also very unique, every single one of you. And I have to wonder, does God know every bacteria in your body? If he counts the hairs on your head, 
Does he know every microbial cell that's in you and on you? So we're just going to look at uh, a couple of these conditions um, very briefly. Obesity, uh, very interestingly, uh, let's go to the, the picture over here. These are some of the effects that we see in obese people. In the microbiota, the altered composition of the microbiome, leading to altered fermentation as well, and also increased energy harvest. Oh, that's definitely a bad combination, right? If you're trying to lose weight. So what does it do to you? In the brain, it decreases satiety when your microbiome is altered. So for individuals who are struggling with their weight and who are hungry all the time, maybe we need to check and see what their microbiome looks like. And maybe we need to find a way to help them achieve that satiety. And one of the best things to do that is fiber. So with the liver, it increases short-chain fatty acids. It also increases inflammation. So there's a correlation with the microbiome affecting that. In, in the fat tissue, it increases triglyceride incorporation. So again, more storage of the triglycerides and also increases inflammation. And in the muscle, it decreases fatty acid oxidation. And in the epithelium, increases permeability. So all of these factors are really adding up to give that individual a very difficult time in getting to their, their ideal or even just a better body weight. So obesity has been shown to be associated with a poor combination of microbes in the gut. So what's outside of that normal spectrum? By the way, that previous research study that looked at the, the quote-unquote normals, um, they did exclude people who had numerous con conditions and, and health problems. Um, and they tested their microbiome, too, to, ma to make sure that it was sort of the normal flora. Um, also, we find, very interestingly, that the gut microbiome is different between obese and lean twins. So twins tend to have even a more common microbiome composition than a child and mother. Twins are even more common, but when we're looking at difference between obese and, twi and lean twins, there is a difference in their composition. And the obese twin, they have lower diversity of bacteria, and that appears to be one of the primary factors in a lot of these diseases, is just that lower diversity. Again, reflecting back to that agricultural culture where there's a higher diversity. And so maybe some things we can learn and apply here. Uh, the obese twin also has a higher level of enzymes. And all of this combined leads to that they are more efficient in digesting food and gathering those calories. So, of course, that is going to contribute to continued weight gain um, and certainly prevent weight loss. Here's um, a publication um, looking at discordant twins. So, 
an obese and a lean twin. Now, th with this research study, they only had four pairs. So it's a small sample, but good information for us to get started. Um, and this was in Missouri, adolescent females. So fecal samples from each twin was introduced into mice. Um, I believe it was introduced orally. And these were germ-free mice. The, the mice were fed a low-fat diet um, that was high in plant polysaccharides, so considerably a healthy diet. And what they found is that when the, the microbiome from the lean twin, when it was inserted in the mouse, the mouse lost weight. Okay? Now, on that same diet when the microbiome from the obese twin was inserted into the mouse, the mouse gained weight. No changes in diet, no changes in physical activity, no changes in anything else, simply the microbiome. Again, a small study, again, looking at animal models, but a very provocative finding. And in fact, Here's another um, case study, case report, of a 32-year-old woman who had fecal transplant, and she gained 40 pounds after the fecal transplant. 40 pounds. Her BMI went from 26, so just slightly overweight, to 33. And she was not able to lose the weight. Well, it turns out that her donor was her daughter, was obese. So their microbiota, again, to begin with, was probably fairly similar, except that one was lean and the other was obese. And we found that mom took on the daughter's bacteria and then gained 40 pounds. So what does that mean for us when we're trying to to uh, reach and minister to the obese population. You know, um, I, I worked on Guam for a couple of years as the dietitian at the Adventist Clinic. Loved it, loved it. The people there are just beautiful people. But a really big issue with obesity. And you know, we, we taught them the healthy lifestyle and they were happy to do it when they could and we had some wonderful success stories, but there were a lot of people who were not able to lose the weight. And I wonder if we have been missing something. Have we been missing something that's very, very personal and integral to each one of us? So the other um, condition I want to look at is the gut-brain axis. So the vagus nerve, we know, provides the connection between the brain and the gut. And in fact, it, it, the vagus nerve uh, divides up into three branches that intersect at three different areas of the, of the gut. Um, and the microbiome influences the central nervous system in response by modulating the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal 
axis. It also modulates the immune system, neurotransmitter pathways, and growth factors. So there's a lot of interaction. You know, the, the gut is directly connected to the brain, and the microbiome affects the quality of the gut. So wouldn't it make sense that that would then have effects on the brain as well? So we have, we have found behavioral and cognitive alterations in individuals where they seem to be evidence that this is linked to um, uh, some of the, the hormones, norepinephrine, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, dopamine. There's also indication of, of um, adequate or inadequate performance on learning and memory based on the composition of, of your microbiome. And it also modulates the limbic system, including the amygdala and the hypothalamus. So some, some direct correlations that we're finding. And emotional stress impacts the gut microbiome composition as well. So how, how do we help people with their stress management? How do we help them in dealing with situations that seem almost impossible for them to get out of? How do we help them with family stressors, with financial stressors? Are we really looking at them from a truly holistic and wholesome perspective and looking at those other external factors that could be um, causing these downstream effects? So what else does it do? Um, in, in some of the neuropsychiatric disorders, including depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, autism, there appear to be gut micro, microbiome changes in individuals who have those conditions versus those who don't. There's also, I found this interesting, an individual-level social interaction that has been linked with microbiome composition. So if you are in a good, healthy relationship with someone there could be an effect on your microbiome. Again, we are not, no man is an island, right? And it affects our innards. Early life disruption of the microbial gut-brain axis is associated with later life neuropsychiatric disorders, including depression. And appetite regulation is modulated by molecules that are that are um, produced by gut microorganisms. We, we saw that earlier. And there's a link between the microbiome composition and neurodevelopment that has been proposed, at least, um, including functional changes in actual brain regions related to that. So these effects really are very far-reaching and really seem to affect some very important and key areas of the brain. So what about probiotics? Is there any help with probiotics? Or is it just uh, another way for, uh, for commerce? So um, we have seen some associated neurophysiological changes with probiotics. And it seems to include the BDNF, the dopamine, norepinephrine, corticotrophin releasing factor. So again, kind of seems to be 
reversing some of those dis dis disordered responses and and um, and um, molecule production. They've also found that using B infantis um, has been associated with an improved HPA axis in response to stress. Now that's an animal model. And also in um, other animal models, lactobacillium for a month, administered for a month, is enough to modulate the neuronal gene expression just after a month. And that affects behavior as well in those animals. So there are many, many different factors that influence the gut microbiome. Numerous factors. Now, if you look at these, diet, the womb, mode of delivery, gestational age at birth, genetics, environment, and antibiotics, how many of those are modifiable? Not all. You didn't choose how you were born. But you can modify your diet, your environment, and to, at least to some extent. And what about the types of food that we eat that may have an overabundance of antibiotics in them? So, um, and, and all of that, what it comes down to, the, the, the harmony or the disharmony of what is happening inside your gut can then contribute to either health or disease. So, you know, um, it is important to, to reflect, I believe, on how, what, what does this teach us about who God is and what God calls us to be. There are spiritual lessons to be learned in nature, perhaps even our microbiome. So I want to share a story to start with. Um, how many of you know how to ride a bike? Okay, all right. And you've known how to ride a bike since you were about Six years old, seven years old, yeah, a number of you, great. And I'm not talking about that bike necessarily, you know, just the regular one. Yeah, just, <laughs> just the pedal, right? Yeah, so um, I, I, I am very unique in that I did not learn how to ride a bike when I was a child. I was the one who fell off the first time and never got back on. But, you know, it's always been on my list to do to ride a bike and when I was a student at Loma Linda there were a couple times where friends and I went to the beach and we rode on the beach and the first time my very good friend allowed me to ride tandem with her um, and the, the next time I, I was able to go on my own but then I tried again and it didn't work it didn't work I was by myself that time and I couldn't Get, yeah, I couldn't even get on. So um, just a few months ago, maybe a couple months ago, oh, it was the hottest, hottest day of the summer, I think, in, in Maryland. And um, some friends and I had been talking about going for a bike ride. Now, the organizer, who happens to be sitting right here, 
um, knew that I couldn't ride a bike. And so the plan was to go to a very easy place. Not, you know, just a straight road, no traffic around you, not too many people, very easy, gentle. And so they were going to help me learn how to ride a bike. So here we are at the start. Here's our little group, six of us. We, you know, had the right equipment, the helmet. I thought I needed knee pads and elbow pads and, you know, like those spacesuits, but apparently not. Um, so we got onto our bikes, and again, so I, they, they were very patient, and they let me ride around the parking lot a few times just to get the hang of it. But then we had to get on the road, and this was the road, just a little bike path. And it was pretty much like this the entire way. So very easy, very simple, something that a beginner could do. And as we went along, the thought struck me. Why was it that when I was alone, I couldn't ride that bike? But why was it when I was here with these group of friends who were so embracing of my dysfunction, <laughs> my inability to ride, and so encouraging, and that with their support, their guidance, and even at times driving off in front of me and letting me struggle on my own, but knowing that they were going to circle back at some point and check on me, that I was able to get and ride that bike. And I accomplished 10 miles round trip. So not too bad, right? For your first solo ride. Well, of course, some of them did 20 miles, but, you know. But still, and it, it just couldn't it, it escape me, the fact that it was because I was with the right people. I was in the right community. And similarly, when our microbiome get mixed in in the wrong communities, it can lead to disease. And when we get mixed in in the wrong communities, there's a lot of damage that happens to us too, isn't there? It's so important. Here we are at the end, still smiling and rejoicing. It was a terribly hot day, but we made it, and we made it together. It's really important, I think, that we understand the role of being together, the role of supporting one another, the role of being very unique having our own fingerprints, and yet making the very conscious decision, we're going to do this together. Christ gave us this promise in Matthew 24, in the midst of him talking about all of the terrible things that are going to happen to us before the end of the world. He gives us this promise, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world 
for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. You see, I was in a very small group there that day that I succeeded in the bike ride. But Christ was telling us that's wonderful when in your small community you are successful. But he's saying to us, but there's a world out there. There's a world out there. There's a world to our microbiome. It's incredibly unique and beautiful, and yet it ties us all together in certain ways. There's a world out there. There's a type of communication that they've recently discovered that bacteria have. It's called quorum sensing. This is the communication between bacteria, and it's the process, it involves a process of biosynthesis that tell nearby bacteria to recognize each other and to actually clump together in a community. It's like a call to unite, a call to come together. And they're finding that bacteria and other single-cell organisms have the ability to transmit signals to others in their community for the purpose of achieving their goals. For the purpose of achieving their goals, the call to come together. So communication. How important is our communication within our community, within our church? Are we communicating only to tell people what we want them to do? Or are we communicating to learn how to understand each other? It's by coming together that we can actually help facilitate change in people. I would not have been able to ride that bike if I did not have a community coming to support me. There's importance in the strength of the communication but also important is what is the effect of that communication? What are the words and the body language saying? How, what is being transmitted to, that, to the others? Is it like the bacteria come together because we are going to overcome these antibiotics that are attacking us and we are going to damage whatever it is? Is it harmful? Or is it hurtful? What does our communication actually accomplish? And I think that's equally as important as actually having a strong communication. When, um, when I started my ministry in Loma Linda, when I was there as a student, um, as Norman mentioned, I uh, was really, really struggling, <laughs> honestly, with that, with that call. And as I was reading um, the Spirit of Prophecy, I came to a um, passage that just resonated so strongly with me. And it really became the theme and what I wanted to accomplish in my ministry. And I'm still, still trying to accomplish. This is in Selected Messages, Volume 1. And she says this. I was in vision taken to heaven, and the angel said to me, Look, 
I looked to the world as it was in dense darkness. The agony that came over me was indescribable as I saw this darkness. Do we see darkness in this world? Immense, immeasurable darkness in the world. She goes on, again the word came from the angel, look ye. And again I looked intensely over the world, and as I began to see jets of light like stars dotted all through this darkness, and then I saw another and another added light, and so all through this moral darkness, the star-like lights were increasing. The angel said, these are they that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are obeying the words of Christ. These are the light of the world. I saw then these little jets of light growing bigger, brighter, shining forth from the east and the west, from the north, from the south, until it encompassed the entire world. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what quorum sensing could do? in us. But very importantly, she ends with this, I saw that the rays of light came directly from Jesus to form these precious jets of light in the world. So as complex as our microbiome is, how much more complex are we? How much more difficult to get our dysbiotic state into a state where we are aligned with the Lord Jesus Christ and where we can take his gospel to the entire world. It says it's going to happen. And it needs to happen with each one of us. So the message that I want to end with is pressed together. Human microbiome unite. The world is filled with darkness, and the Lord is calling us to come together so we can bring light to the world. Thank you. Okay, so the question was, um, with the depression affecting or being affected by the microbiome, was that related to the, the drugs that were being taken? And um, actually, in that study, they didn't really specify. Um, there have been several different studies that have looked at, at um, the microbiome and, the, and depression. So I can't give you the direct answer for that. Yes. Okay, fecal transplant. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so it is taking taking the fecal matter from one human being, purifying it, 
you know, breaking it down to, to um, a safe, I guess, you know, state and actually implanting it in the person, putting it. It's growing. It is growing. Yes. It's, uh, yeah. Right. And so, so the question is, you know, what do you see when you change the diet? For example, that one research uh, that looked at the geographic variation of how in an agrarian society, which was mostly plant-based, that they had a higher microbial diversity and lower incidence of the chronic conditions that, that the urban populations tend to face. So, so yes, there is a bit of chicken and egg, but I think the point is that we can modify um, the microbiome by changing the diet. So for a patient who does have um, certain health conditions, then changing that diet again. Yes. Uh, I think, oh, oh yes, go ahead. Yeah, the, sure, increasing that diversity, increasing the microbial diversity by, by facilitating that diet change. Yeah, certainly that's, that's something I think is important to, to take away and to consider. Yeah. Yes, Melissa. Yeah, I did not look at the autism research very closely. Um, so she's asking, are there certain strains that are better for autistic children? Um, and so um, I, ca I can't give you the answer. Yeah. Are the slides available? Um, yes. Yes. If you give me your, yeah, you can send me an email right here, help at nadadventist.org. And I can send you the slides, uh, along with the, the actual reference list as well. Yes? In general, what is the best way to rebuild the microbiome? Yeah. The best way. Wow. I mean, it's, um, I, I'm not very familiar if there are any medicated ways, if you're looking at the fastest way, um, but we can look at probiotics, um, introducing that. But, you know, let's not forget the importance of prebiotics, which are the digestible fibers, um, the, so the, the whole foods, really, that help to support the life of the probiotics as well. So, um, so the good news is that the microbiome can change. Um, it would be interesting, and I haven't seen this, but it would be interesting to see how long does it take, especially after a course of antibiotics. How long would it take? So. Yeah. 
Absolutely, yeah. Bacteria um, have asexual reproduction, so they multiply very, very quickly. Yeah. Okay, yes. Um, there hasn't been a recommendation coming out from any of the, um, the licensing boards or, or societies, yeah. That's a good question. Um, I'm sorry. The, the question was, how do um, um, the sprays on, on uh, plant foods, how does that affect the vegetarian's microbiome? And, and there actually, I didn't find any research that looked at that. This is still a very young field. They're still trying to figure out what's normal, actually. They're still trying to, to figure out what, what our microbiome really should be. So there are so many questions that are left to be answered. Yes, Melissa. Wow. Difference between cultured and fermented foods. Um, there are different bacteria that are used for the different processes. Um, that get that are used. So I, so that's going to be my general answer. Um, so there, there, you can expect to probably have some differences in effect, probably. But um, there is, yeah, we need to do more research in that too. Um, there's, there's a lot of. I, I don't want to say anecdotal evidence and use of the culture and fermented foods. There's, there's a fair amount of research as well, but, um, but we do know that depending on what species you use, that can affect um, the, the results. And there could be some individual variation in that too because our own bacteria are variated, yeah. Sarah, yes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's um, has anybody actually seen research on that or seen case studies you have? Yeah, where they've done that? Of course, with animal models, yeah, we have seen that. I haven't seen with human, but yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, seems to work with animals. Well, I don't know if we're out of time at this point, but... Lots of questions. Keep asking, keep thinking, and maybe someday we'll do a part two, get more advanced. Um, but thank you for being with us, and blessings on the rest of your day. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.